Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, you just finished a week of camp during which you spoke to a group of homeschooled teens. That's right, Scott. I spoke to 50 homeschooled teenagers at Camp Hope in Dahlonega, Georgia. Scott, do you know Dahlonega's claim to fame? Um, Camp Hope. (laughs) Good guess. (laughs) And I wish more people did know about Camp Hope. It's a wonderful facility. But Dahlonega's claim to fame is it once was home to a gold rush in 1828. Hmm. Ten years later, the U.S. government even built a U.S. mint in Dahlonega. But by the early 1840s, the gold was all panned out. And all the gold hunters rushed to California. Yep, the 49ers, they're called. So anyway, getting back to Camp Hope, where I'll bet there is still some gold in them there hills. Mm. The real treasure is the young people that come there to enjoy a week of camp with all its activities, including lots of Bible studying. And I found this group in particular was very eager to learn and ask lots of questions. Now, I assume you talked about creation? I did. But the theme for the camp this year is the Kingdom of the Son, S-O-N. So I weaved as much as I could of the theme of Jesus' kingdom into the messages. And it wasn't difficult, given the theme verse was Colossians 1.13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son which is then followed by the extensive description of what the Son created. Scott, keep reading in Colossians 1. Okay, verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, that last verse you read, Scott, relates to the kingdom of the Son and his work in creation. Notice Jesus Christ's death on the cross enabled the reconciliation of all creation back to God. It said things on earth or things in heaven. So, an important part of the kingdom of the Son really is the material realm, the created universe, including the sun, moon, and stars, the earth and seas, and all they contain. The reason the material realm, not just humanity, needs to be reconciled is due to what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. Scott, did God curse Adam after he sinned? No, he cursed the ground. So that explains why the earth would also need to be reconciled back to God. Dr. Scripture, wouldn't the term redeemed also fit what Christ's blood accomplished for all creation, not just man? Yes, redemption is a kind of setting free. The concept of the Lord redeeming Israel out of Egypt is presented many times in the Bible, and that carried with it the idea that they were set free. So we read in Romans 8, verses 20 and 21, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, very assuredly, 
all creation is included in the coming kingdom of the Son that believers are eagerly looking forward to. And like I mentioned, the students at Camp Hope were eager to learn and demonstrated that, not only by listening intently, I was really impressed, but by asking questions that indicated they were listening and thinking about what I said. You know, Dr. Scripture, it seems that nowadays that is not a normal response by teenagers, Mm -hmm. you know, eager to listen and to learn in a classroom-like setting. I mean, these kids were at camp. You'd expect them to be hoping the chapel would hurry up and be over so they could get back to swimming or sports activities or other free time. What do you think made the difference? Well, Scott, I'd like to think the mesmerizing teacher had something to do with it. I'm sure it did. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not at all sure. But perhaps their normally being homeschooled meant they didn't have the peer pressure baggage that often comes from secular public school kids. You know, it's cool to not care about what's being taught and to get away with as much as possible. You know, maybe another factor was there were absolutely no devices allowed. No phones, no tablets, computers. There was no Wi-Fi, no TVs. It's amazing how quickly we can adjust to physical contact life when all forms of virtual life are unavailable. Yep. But I digress. The positive truth is those teenagers were engaged and asked great questions. Most of them were the kind of questions I commonly get. But as you might have already figured, I want to address one of the questions I got in the program today. I was wondering if you were going to do that. So what's the question? Well, we were studying the second day of creation when God separated the water above the expanse from the water below the expanse, which was essentially, according to most creation models, God was making an atmosphere between a water vapor canopy above it and the ocean, which covered the entire planet at that point, below it, that is, below the atmosphere. And one young man asked, was the water in the ocean salty like they are today when God created them? Now, the Bible doesn't say whether the water was salt water or not on day two or three for that matter. However, because of the kinds of information we have today, as a creationist understanding the days of creation were simple rotations of the earth, That would mean the oceans of the earth are not billions of years old as deep time believers would have you believe. They are only on the order of thousands of years old. And again, the creation models propose that since their creation, the oceans have been getting saltier. And in fact, they would have experienced a large jump in salinity at and after the global flood. To the extent that perhaps the oceans were not near as salty before the flood as they are now. Well, Dr. Scripture, as I recall the arguments for a young earth, isn't the salinity of the oceans one that young earth creation is sight? Mm-hmm. The argument says if the oceans of the earth were billions of years old, they would be extremely salty by now. You're right, Scott. So with that in mind, I did a little research on what the secular scientific community says about the salinity of the seas. Here's a few statements from an article in Popular Mechanics by Jennifer Lehman entitled, So, Why is the Ocean So Salty? Quote, Rivers are the key to a salty sea. On average, the concentration of salt in the ocean hovers around 35 parts per thousand. If you were to remove all the salt from the oceans and spread it thick across Earth's land surface, it would form a layer roughly 500 feet thick, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That's NOAA. Gulping up a mouthful of saline seawater can be gross, but Hmm. how did all that salt get there in the first place? You can thank the rocks on shore. 
Rainwater erodes rocks on land and sends minerals and dissolved ions, including chloride and sodium, through rivers and streams into the ocean. These ions in particular make up more than 90% of all dissolved ions in the ocean and are responsible for its saltiness, according to the United States Geological Survey. Rivers play an important role in transporting salts and other minerals to the ocean and discharge roughly 225 million tons of dissolved solids into the ocean each year, according to NOAA. But they aren't the only source. In regions of underwater volcanism, salt can be deposited into the ocean. As fresh lava emerges from the volcanoes on the seafloor, the hot rocks react with the salty seawater, dissolving some of its minerals. But the ocean isn't uniformly salty. Hmm. Some sections of the sea are saltier than others. For example, the seafloor of the Gulf of Mexico is filled with briny salt ponds caused by the dissolution of ancient layers of salt, according to NOAA. These pools of super salty sludge <laughs> can even host strange bacteria on the bottom of the sea. Bacteria that scientists suspect could be found in other parts of the solar system. Okay, Dr. Scripture, that article was very informative, explaining how the oceans acquired dissolved minerals, making them salty, and then bacterial life on Mars? <laughs> yes. What is it with scientific writers? It seems they simply cannot write any kind of scientific article without inserting evolutionary doctrine. <laughs> and that's a good word for it, Scott. And in this case, perhaps there's a subtle reason. You notice the article only cited where the salt comes from, and one might wonder after reading it, if the world is billions of years old, why isn't the ocean like the Dead Sea? Super salty. Yeah. And by the way, water can dissolve on average about 10 times more salt than what is found in the ocean today hmm. before it starts precipitating out of solution. So, just in case any kind of question concerning evolution or the age of the Earth popped into a reader's mind, they're reminded that life is evolving in other parts of the solar system, too. <laughs> <laughs> that is, of course, totally speculative and without any grounds other than evolutionists want there to be life on other planets. So then, I found another article that addresses the issue of why the oceans are not saltier. In Science Focus, a publication of BBC, an article titled, Are the Oceans Getting Saltier? by Robert Matthews, a physicist who studied at Oxford and teaches at Aston University, wrote this, quote, The Dead Sea is about 10 times saltier than normal seawater, but we're still stumped as to why the rest of the oceans haven't caught up, unquote. He then explains what we learned in the first article about how salt ions get in the oceans, then quoting again, as this process has been operating for billions of years, there's no doubt oceans have gotten saltier over time. In fact, the real mystery is why they aren't now saturated with the stuff, making them as lifeless as the Dead Sea. Somehow, the concentration has remained as just a few percent for at least half a billion years. Exactly how isn't clear. But one theory suggested by British ecologist James Lovelock involves the vast mat-like colonies of bacteria found in coastal lagoons around the world. The sun's heat triggers evaporation of the water, leaving its salt content trapped on the coast and unable to dissolve back into the sea. Unquote. So an ecologist has a suggestion? That's it? <laughs> well, let's read from NASA's website, science.nasa.gov, an article simply titled Salinity. 
It says, quote, Throughout Earth's history, certain processes have served to make the ocean salty. The weathering of rocks delivers the minerals, including salt, into the ocean. Evaporation of ocean water and formation of sea ice both increase the salinity of the ocean. However, these salinity racing factors are continually counterbalanced by processes that decrease salinity, such as the continuous input of fresh water from rivers, participation of rain and snow, and melting of ice, unquote. Now, that sounds logical, doesn't it? Yeah. Except for the fact that it's the rain on the land that brings the salt into the oceans. <laughs> and here's an interesting fact. NASA says 86% of global evaporation but only 78% of global precipitation occur over the ocean. Hmm. So rain isn't diluting the salt of the oceans. It, through erosion on land, brings higher concentrations of salt into the oceans. So does the article address that and explain where the salt goes? Scott, I found nothing. Just a couple of suggestions, bacteria drying out on shore, and I also found something about the formation of salt basins in some places around the ocean shores. Nothing that could explain four billion years of rivers bringing salt into the world's oceans. So at creation, were the oceans as salty as they are today? I think we can say it's very likely they were not. But over several thousands of years, their salinity has increased. And Exodus 20.11 helps us understand why they are not a lot saltier. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says. 